This is the Imperfect Buddha podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Today we will be talking to a familiar guest here on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Glenn Wallace has returned and we're going to be talking about two areas. The first one will be the topic of education and fundamentally pedagogy. We'll also be talking to Glenn about his brand new book, A Critique of Western Buddhism. Certainly a book that's timely and well needed. Therefore, the podcast is divided into two halves. Some of the themes we will look at in the first half may not initially seem of interest to those who are strictly into the Buddhist stuff, but I would suggest that the themes are highly relevant. And if you're a Buddhist, let's be honest, you are entrenched in the project of learning, or at least you ought to be. This may be about yourself, the nature of self, reality, or phenomenological experience, or whatever else you want to call it. The Buddhist enterprise involves a range of pedagogical aims. And it may be interesting to seek to apply the discussion today in the first half to the Dharma halls, meditation centers, and even your own sitting, and the teaching relationships that unfold in those places. Many Buddhist teachers have no pedagogical background at all, and may have no awareness of development in education, which is to say our collective deepening understanding of what it means to teach something well, and to provide an environment in the best of cases in which individuals and groups can learn. The transmission of Dharma involves teaching, involves ideas about who the teacher is, who the student is, what is to be taught, how it should be taught, and the value of critique of each of those, and what is possible to talk about, to experience, to discuss. And of course, Dharma halls are impregnated by strong ideas about the role he or she who knows and she or he who doesn't know should fit into. Nothing is ever quite as simple as it seems. Now, as an educator, I share some experience with today's guest. Now, my education background and my teaching environment is going to be a little bit different from Glenn's, but I think we share some of the same concerns about what it means to teach, what it means to be a teacher, what's effective, and is it what we should always be after, being productive, producing great students. So we'll be talking about some different ideas about teaching today. We may cover some of the challenges which educational institutes are facing as universities, but also schools, get saturated ever further by the neoliberal agenda and its fantasies about everything being highly functional and productive. Now, in the interests of raising interest and shamelessly following the Zero Books podcast, I would like to bring the iconoclast, if we can call him that, Mr. Jordan Peterson into the discussion, because why not? This is because the topic I will be discussing with Glenn is intimately related to one of Peterson's favourite dualities, namely that one between chaos and order. Unlearning is the theme we're going to be starting off with in the first part of the discussion, and from what little I've read of it, it seems squarely in the chaos side of the dualism. Glenn, welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. It's good to see you. Well, good to have you on. Good to hear you. Thank you, Matthew. Same. How have you been of late? I've been well. Thank you. Good. So what do you think? Is um, unlearning 
somehow chaos manifest, or have I missed the mark? No, it's certainly headed in that direction. It's, if you wanted to use that duality, I would say that unlearning sees a real problem in the on the continuum that's headed towards the direction of order. It's a kind of a duality that goes back to the very definition. You can even say debates around the actual root meaning of the word education. Some historians of education say our contemporary idea of education comes out of this this root ed- educare, which means to form, to fashion, to train. Some say it comes out of a Latin root meaning educare, which means something like uh, to, you know this old idea. I'm sure you've all educators have heard it that education means to draw out, you know, to to create an environment within which something can can be drawn out and also ideas of like you're drawing the student or whatever, you know, lack of a better word right now, out of precisely those kinds of passive formation that he or she has been subject to. So maybe that duality goes back to the very root of education. Is it about creating an orderly subjects, uh, subject who functions, who thereby contributes and helps to, you know, maintain an orderly society? Or is it about something that's much more unruly uh, and creates a different kind of subject who is at odds with the constraints that come with order and so forth? So to answer your question, yeah, certainly the idea of unlearning is certainly headed in the direction of chaos. It's not chaotic, but it's headed in that direction. Mm. Yeah, this question of, of order and chaos is, is fascinating, rich, and, and goes very, very deep into our ideas about society as a whole. And it makes me think of how some of the popular images of Dharma halls, they are the sort of epitome of control, right? Or self-control. And there's the person sat in an erect posture, not moving. They're, they're very, very fixed and frozen in a sense. So it's interesting how that, that image, that popular image of like the composed equanimous Buddhist actually fits very neatly into a, a very, very controlled image of what society should become. Yes. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, you chose this topic of unlearning. And um, we've had conversations a little bit uh, on the podcast about the university environment before and neoliberalism. But what drove you specifically to pick out this topic of unlearning to present as the the next workshop that you'll be doing personally as part of the Insight Seminars? I'll say something specifically uh, specifically about that in a second. But going back, I thought it was a very interesting example you gave about the Dharma Hall. uh, What happens in a meditation environment? And it's very interesting to me because I think you're right. I think you're implicitly suggesting that there is a correlation between the ritualized forms of a, a learning environment, you know, how we sit, how, how we are in relation to one another. Is one standing, the other sitting? Are we eye to eye? Is there motion? Is there changeability or is there rigidity? All this kind of stuff. Maybe you can make the argument that you could analyze the ritualized nature of a certain learning environment and extrapolate from that just what kind of education is happening there, whether it's formation or liberation or something like that, and also what kind of subjects being formed. So I think it's very interesting that there is something about, I mean, so when you were describing that, I thought of my old Zen training, which was, you know, profoundly rigid and, and you know, highly ritualized. The problem's not with the ritualizations, with what happens within the ritualization. But everything about it suggested that you were being formed here, that we know what an enlightened you know, creature looks like, and we're going to put you through the machinery, the ritualized meditational machinery, and you will come out formed in that image. That also 
realization about all this, and the same goes to the college classroom. I, my students, you know, they basically sit in these chairs that look like they're made for sixth graders. You know, these little hard wooden or fake wood chairs with these little desks in front, so they're kind of trapped in there. And the classroom forces us into this hierarchical relationship where I'm I'm the authority standing up there, and et cetera, et cetera. The ritualized formation already forces a certain model of education. It already determines to a certain degree, and maybe even quite a large degree, just what is possible to happen in there. Now, my interest in education really goes way, way back. It's not coming from the academic standpoint. I'm not an historian of education or anything. I don't read books on like educational theory per se. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on this podcast before, but I went to what is variously called a free school, a democratic school, or or an anarchist school. This was something that was happening in America in the 1970s. This um, school in Massachusetts called Sudbury Valley opened up uh, in the late 60s, 1968, I think, and they created a kind of manifesto of what should happen in the classroom. Um, non-hierarchical, no grades, face-to-face, no age or segregation of any sort, student curriculum driven by student interests, and so forth. I'm sure you can still go online and find the Sudbury Valley Manifesto. And I went to one of these schools that took it in a little kind of more radical direction and introduced certain ideas straight out of anarchist theory. Anarchists are very, very interested in, in education because they believe that the human being has a capacity to be an absolute beast and murderous monster. We have lots of evidence for that. Or somewhere in the middle can be caught up in in a, a mode, of, a logic of competition. I see this in the classroom. These students are learning to be competitors. <clears throat> the human being can be an agent of cooperation. All of this depends on education. This is not an idealism. It's kind of a materialism. So it believes that Education is central to kind of state, and, and here, here comes here we're bumping already into certain paradoxes where it's like the people don't realize this, but anarchist thought is profoundly interested in the nature of order. People have this idea that anarchism is all about disorder and so forth. That's the you know the everyday sense of the term anarchy. But anarchists are convinced that we must, we have to live in order, we have to live in community, we have to find ways to do that. That, that are cooperative and, and emancipatory and give rise to creativity and, and the allowance of you know people to, to fulfill their interests and so forth. So the, it's always a question of how we go about doing that. So a kind of free school type of education was searching for methods and modes within the existing structure of the school about how to do that. And I, I was deeply, deeply affected by that as a young man. I was immersed in this kind of education I wasn't functioning in the in the structured high school. So as a 15-year-old, I came to this school, and it, it was just absolutely incredible what happened in there. The, the place closed after two and a half years, so I had to drop out, and I just kind of forgot about it. But as I get older, I, I start to realize how deeply formative that was and like how much of even my Buddhist critique of what goes on in a, in a Buddhist setting or a classroom setting is really was drawing from that old experience but in a in an implicit way and just in the last few years or no last year or so i've decided to really make that much more explicit in my work okay 
Yeah, that's interesting. Thinking about the classroom environment myself, I mean, it can be tempting sometimes to drift towards one extreme or the other in terms of, well, let's the, the stick with the, the metaphor we're using of chaos and order. The kids I teach, you know, they're language students. I teach critical thinking skills and writing skills too. You know, they have objectives. They're in a system which demands that they move towards something, they achieve something, they produce results. And certainly, you know, you can't abandon that completely because it just doesn't function. But it seems to me that um, some of the principles I picked out of the, the unlearning document that I read, they're tools which you could use to subvert the normalcy of the classroom environment and, you know, sort of introduce some space for different types of creativity without having to sort of deconstruct and undermine the, the whole endeavor, you know, of teaching people, in this case, teenagers or, or right. adults, right? Sets of right. skills that they can use to navigate the real world or let's say the, the, the current sure. reality we exist in. The societies are driven by these compulsions just as individuals are. You know, we, we've talked about the neoliberal apparatus and so forth here on the podcast with Ron and, and briefly with you too. But there are some um, interesting folks out there who are saying that, you know, basically neoliberalism is coming towards an end. I don't necessarily want to get into a debate about that, but it, it kind of feels that at least that we're aware of it enough, enough of us are, that perhaps that in itself provides the space for us to start to destabilize the norms and the impulses and the urges of neoliberalism to keep pushing, let's say, less conscious teachers and educators to just, you know, keep going with this mad rush to try and produce these competitive producers of, of whatever it is and send them out ready to, you know, slot into right. this this market <laughs> machine, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes, I don't know, I, you've taught a lot, you've taught many years as I have, and students are individuals, right? They come along with their own concerns and backgrounds, and, and sometimes it's enough just to have a person who actually looks them in the eye, gives them a decent quality of attention, and tells them that other possibilities are out there. And that can yeah. be enough for some kids to suddenly go, oh, shit, you know, really, wow. For other kids instead, you know, it takes a year or two of, of possibilities being presented on a regular basis for them to slowly realize, wow, yeah. you know, I could also, you know, continue with my, 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 my dream or my project, but perhaps do it slightly differently. Yes. Well, an encounter I had with a student just came to mind. I always present to students with my approach because it's very different from their other, their other classes. And I really want them to be very clear about the fact that they cannot function as the passive student in the classroom. At some point, I want to distinguish between learning and educating. But So let's come back to that. But I want to make it very clear to them that we're doing something like education in there and that um, being the passive you know, learner taking notes, absorbing whatever the teacher is saying and, and recording that, uh, that's not going to work. And I do this kind of the first couple of days of class to just get them thinking about how they might function differently. And, and we were talking about what might be, is there any danger in this sort of thing? And the students recognize there is a danger in this sort of thing because it's, it's disrupting what seems to go unnoticed and that they function imperfectly well. And Someone raised the question of whether that could be disruptive to society, and this young young woman said, "No, not really, because because the current society is just so powerful that if one or two or three people go out in this manner, they'll just get annihilated in a sense. Like their ideas are not going to have any place to take hold. So there's something about what we're talking about here that involves these powerful institutions like the university." Um, or, you know, Buddhist training spheres are powerful institutions. A lot of people pass through them, go back into society. And the question is, are they going back in, in a way that, that just helps to maintain the status quo? Or are there 
going back in a way that actually uh, can disrupt that in some way. And when you really start thinking about that possibility in an unromantic way, you realize, first of all, you realize that the value of something like a university, because it's a power, powerful institution that attracts you know, millions and millions of people. But then you also start realizing just how much that institution at present is perfectly complicit, perfectly of a piece, you know, woven into this larger neoliberal capitalist fabric. If it, at some point in history was set apart from it, I don't know. That's for an historian of education. But academics, a lot of academics have this idea of themselves that they are an institution that stands in opposition to the status quo. But it's not the case that they are that. It's They are woven into the same fabric. I'm convinced of that. Can, can I say something about, about teaching language that you mentioned? I think teaching language is really interesting because imagine teaching a language with, with a purely lecture form. With a perfectly, like the lecture form is what happens in, in universities, even in the humanities. Like the guy stands up there. This is what one of the texts in the reader we're using for the seminar, the Jacques Rancière text, is all about the destructiveness of the basic premise of learning. And that is, is that it's the role of the teacher to explain. So it's like anti-explicative. He's against the explicative order. Because that's the unquestioned logic of learning is that there's some expert whose intelligence or knowledge is superior to the others and that he he or she can go about the business of of uncovering this knowledge solely in a very precise and particular way that depends. It goes back to the, you know, the form of the discipline. And I, you know, language is interesting because I've learned languages and I've also played music. And I just think of the absurdity of trying to teach either one of those subjects in, in in a explicative manner. Right, from the front. Yeah, up front, lecturing, and the students never actually speak. They just write this stuff in their notebooks. How absurd. Language learning to me is a a great model of how all education could be, certainly in the humanities and maybe even in in biology and the science. And that's this kind of process of of discovering, of using one's intelligence, of of thinking and and engaging dialogue and experimentation and trying in language. In language, almost everything that happens in there is a failure, like people can't even form sentences correctly. The gramma- the grammar's wrong. The you know everything, but but language is being learnt. And same with music. You know, you can make the same sort of analogy. So why not other subjects? Because maybe there's something about the nature of education that requires something more like what we just described with language than what this assumption of, you know, the expert explicating and the the inferior intelligence down there on the receiving end and so forth. I have two responses to what you've just said. The first one is that one of the analogies I use, um, especially with adults, because I teach high school teens, uh, university students, and then adults, and they're all different. They bring their own issues. But the adults are interesting in for a variety of reasons. One of them is they bring these very outdated models of what learning is, and it relates slightly to what you've just said. They they expect to receive, so they're very passive, but they have an idea that language is still somehow a, a topic that is similar to mathematics or, you know, algebra. Uh, you know, I have to sort of do this re-education. It took me a while to realize it. And the first thing I say is, look, you need a new analogy. And the best analogy for understanding how to learn a language is it's like going to the gym, yeah, because it's physical. And because it's physical, I can't do it for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
you know, and it's obvious once you think about it, but because certainly generations of, of Italians have learned, you know, German, English, French, Spanish very much passively, they, they, they obviously haven't learned it very well. That's the first thing to say. But they've been used to a certain mode of learning that just it doesn't function at all. The second thing as well is I teach at the university on occasion and that's exactly what I get when I get there. I'm very surprised, or at least I used to be, that I start teaching them language skills and I ask them to interact and they look at me rather perplexed. <laughs> yes. And it's like, yes. no, guys, that doesn't work. First of all, come down, let's create, you know, tables and circles and you're going to have to put in the work. Yeah. That is really interesting, this idea that it's, you said it's physical. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's such an important missing component to this is that learning is it's it's embodied we do it with our bodies our bodies in the world our bodies in relation to others even our bodies in relation bodies minds emotions senses in relation to a text i think it's absolutely right in the seminar last week we looked at some deleuze and he had he was asking this question what does it take to think what you could say is part of the dialogue of what does it take to have education happen throughout that text uh, was the idea that it has to do with a body becoming compelled for some whatever reason in relation to you know the physical world or the a physical other becoming compelled to thought to think and and surprised by that need or necessity and I think you're absolutely right in the classroom too is it's not a harmless little exercise to just get people sitting across from each other talking there's something that happens with education there that's different from when they're sitting just facing you. It is physical learning. It's physical and it has to be made real and visceral, the ideas. Like I have a class now, we're reading some Taoist stuff and they're always trying to lock into a learning mode, which is you explain and you explain it in terms of what Ranciere calls progression and extension. That is, how does this knowledge progress over time according to the discipline? Like what happened in Taoism point by point by point? We can't know that. Only you can know that. So you have to tell us. And then the other thing is the idea of extension is there's this whole thing going on. It's a big, massive whole thing. We can't possibly know it. We're just looking at a little part here. So we need you, the master, to explain this to us. Learning would do that because learning has this trade or vocational or informational arc to it, but education doesn't do that. So my job as the educator is to, like, so we were reading a text, for example, goes like, abandon sageliness and discard wisdom, then the people will benefit a hundredfold. Abandon humanity and discard righteousness, then the people will return to, to piety and deep love. And it says, you know, abandon skill and profit, and there will be no thieves or robbers. It doesn't make sense on a certain level. It's paradoxical and it's difficult. So the students want an exp explication and the educator refuses to give it because the job is not to teach the history, the extension, the progression of this disciplined Taoism that's been decided on since whenever the colonial, you know, the colonial scholars decided what Taoism was. That's not what we're up to. That's learning. You can learn that and you can go get a PhD in it and go teach that to others. But education is to say, how are you feeling this? Like what, like how is this hitting you? What does this mean? Give up righteousness and then there might be actual righteousness. And then they start playing with that and all kinds of amazing, interesting ideas occur. So that's hitting their bodies in a way. And then something like education starts happening. It's not the education that is strict, going back to what you said about Jordan Peterson, the orderly 
nature of, of the acquisition of knowledge and the perpetuation of a form of knowledge and a discipline. It's not doing that. That's learning. It's doing education, which is this hitting the person's body and mind and them using their intelligence and creativity to make connections. And that's a big thing in that Ranciere piece is that an infinite number of connections are possible. The discipline and the learning aspect only want to make very specific connections, but the educator wants to permit infinite number of potential connections to be made. And you could say the same with language. Like if a real educator of language doesn't want this person just to learn this grammatical structure in and of itself, but it's in order to do all kinds of created, creative things with language. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot there. I think that duality still exists, though. Yes. I've thought about it quite a lot, but I haven't necessarily reached any conclusions. But I do know that um, one of my primary challenges as a teacher is to create an environment in which there is what I would call authentic engagement from students. And the challenge is there. It's actually much easier to, to navigate that as a challenge with younger students. Yes. As they get older, it becomes progressively more difficult. And in fact, after teaching many years at the university and in businesses and various locations in Italy, oddly enough, um, at least it, it, it would be for my older self, I enjoy teaching uh, high school students more than any of the other age groups I have because they're smart enough and they're experienced enough that they, they can think. Yeah. And yet they're not conditioned and programmed enough to have so many strong opinions that they refuse to be open to other possibilities. Yeah. And the, the biggest opinion being the opinion of what's supposed to be happening in this particular environment, right? Yeah. Like what, again, what Deleuze called the image of thought. It's this fixed image. Like we don't know how to think anymore because we already are working within a framework of what it means to think. Yeah. And that needs to be exploded. And that's very difficult to do. Once a person's conditioned into certain ways of thinking, yeah. The other point that comes to my mind as we're speaking is that it's like the, the older these uh, kids get and the more they get into university, they become sort of compelled towards the future. You know, there yeah. are different forces at play here, but it, it seems that this this has probably been a, a factor of that, that age, you know, from 18 to 23 or 25 or whatever it is, that, you know, you get to a certain phase and you are compelled towards the future. You start to see the world of work ahead of you. You, you know, you, you're at university with older students who are now adults officially. And the game changes to a degree which uh, makes it quite difficult, I think, sometimes for them to maintain that openness and that curiosity because they've made a commitment in most cases, you know, I'm going to study one subject now for three or five or plus years. And... It's a shame, really. You know, one of my curiosities, because, you know, I, I teach workshops on, you know, the shamanic stuff, personal development and other stuff. And, and one of the uh, one of the lines of inquiry is always, you know, how is it possible to cultivate spaces for people of all ages to access something different? And, and I think this resonates with one of the points about unlearning, that, you know, unlearning is destabilizing and it asks both teachers and students to reimagine the project of learning, right? right. And it also yes. has this element, the fundamental element of surprise going on, which I like very, very much. I've been working with the element of surprise in my teaching a lot, and it's very, very interesting. But it, again, it's more difficult to do it with <laughs> older folks. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's important to mention that unlearning, because maybe some of the listeners have this idea that unlearning is the opposite of learning or some idea of like forgetting what you know kind of thing, right? You can't really say what it is because it's lots of things to lots of people. It's kind of a way of talking. It's One thing that it is, is making 
you know, making explicit something that's often normally hidden, and that is that there is some concept of learning, and it goes on, and it goes on invisibly. We never question what it is. We never question what it is in relation to another thing that we call education. I often think of it kind of like, I don't want to bring up Laura Well, but it's kind of like a non-learning, really. It's like learning outside of the existing ideology of what constitutes learning. And like what you're describing with your students there, there is a deeply trade-like vocational approach to their education because it's all been fully captured by neoliberalism and capitalism and, you know, the need to, you learn to learn a skill or to show that you know how to do a job so you can go out and make money. And that's precisely what learning is about. And then once you get out, you go look online, do you know, Google learning in business or learning in the corporate world. And in the corporate world, learning is all over the place. It all is lifelong. You learn to do this, learn to be a leader, add these skills, you know, come learn these skills. You can add them to your repertoire of, you know, being a good, a good employee and so forth. Part of what I'm learning is to say that's not what education should be doing. Education does something completely the opposite of that. And you're right, you're identifying an extraordinary obstacle in my mind to using the university or the or the language school or the Buddhist meditation hall or whatever it is for such an environment. And that is this unquestioned compulsion of the students to get whatever credential they need to go out and enter into the workforce. I mean, last few semesters, literally 100% of my students have been STEM students. I teach a course in humanities. They haven't even heard the word, much less taken a course, much less been trained to think in terms of the humanities. So this idea of education is something that's you know, say you'd be, you're surprised by something. Yeah, part of what you can be surprised is that you really hate engineering and math and you really love literature and writing. And that that's a huge destructive surprise you might be in store for if you go about this educational process. What do you do then, you know? As I'm listening to you, there's a sense of uh, rescuing the humanity from the sort of automated procedures of the, you know, the treadmill of education. For, that I might be interested in that in some way. Kind of what I'm hearing is an echo in, in what you're saying. There's a sense of there's a need to rescue the humanity from this this compulsion to just keep going, right? Human humanity or the humanity? No, I mean the humanity of the people. Those so people, right? Yeah. yeah. I I get people telling me stuff sometimes like, "Oh, don't get discouraged. You know, you're you're affecting people's lives, or even if just one or two people." And I say like, "Yeah, that's nice and everything." And I'm I still hear from students from a long time ago and. That's all really, that's great and everything, but what we need to do is something on a larger structural level. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. And I created this Insight Seminars. It's a tiny little thing compared to the university, obviously, but I'm at least trying to create an environment that can grow and resonate and affect more people. And in the classroom of the university, it just feels like you're hitting one obstacle after another. It just, it just feels so impossible. The apathy of the students, it's all capitalist. Like you're the taskmaster. They're, they're down there. They want to get their payments. So they perform the tasks. There are rewards and punishments all along and little enticements and tests and exams. And, and then there's some payoff at the end. It all, I, you know, I always joke with them, like all the words, all the words we read and speak and think about, and it all comes down to a single letter. A B, <laughs> you know, 
it, there's so many obstacles that I, I don't even I don't even necessarily feel good about going in there and and doing this. And if a person is affected, I almost feel sorry for that person. He's just making things difficult, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, this is another question I reflect on because they're, I don't know if they're timeless questions, but they're questions that are of our time and demand to be thought about if you take the uh, the question of what it means to teach seriously. For those listening for more Buddhist content, I think this applies to the coaching work I do, the seminars I run, but also to parenting, you know. It, it covers every instance in which you are an authority or somebody who has knowledge and is respect is expected, you know, to provide a certain a certain context and response and education. Yeah. And the question I always come back to is, you know, how do I provide a, a sane balance between that chaos and order? Because boys, young boys, as my son, need order. They need it. They can't, they, yes. they can't cope without it. Students need a structure. They need a clear idea about what they're going towards. But it seems to me that maybe it's not as bad as it seems in the sense that what's not needed always is a complete radical change but enough of an introduction of a different type of space yeah. that will allow people to experience the more orderly side of things in a more creative way. Right. Well, actually, because even Jacques Rancière's work comes out of a case he found in the archives about this this figure, Joseph uh, Jacques, Jacques Toll, I think is how you say his name. He was a teacher in the 18th century. He was sent to Belgium, Flemish-speaking Belgium, to teach to teach young men French. They had no French. In fact, they were hostile towards French, these students, and he had no Flemish. It's a long story, and Rancière's book, The Ignorant Schoolmaster, is all about this. But the basic idea was that, that he discovered, he claimed to discover something he called universal education. And it was the idea that anyone can function as a teacher for any theme, any subject whatsoever. In other words, he wanted to unsettle this idea that there's an inequality of intelligences, because he thought that idea was of a piece with the social, the hierarchical authoritarian social forms in which there were these inequalities. So he wanted to abolish that at the at the teaching, this educational level. To make a long story short, he was able to teach these students really excellent French spoken and written, although he himself was ignorant of Flemish and they were ignorant of, of French. And he claimed he did the same thing with the piano. And with painting, he things he knew nothing about. He functioned as a as a I don't know what the right word is. And teacher doesn't work anymore. But the intermediary or something. I mean, you talk about your shamanic work. Maybe it's something like that that enabled enabled people to acquire skills and knowledge and abilities that didn't rest on the authority and uh, of the master. There's something completely different going on. And we we kind of bulk at those ideas, especially people go all the way get their PhDs, and then they have a right to they you know they're accredited to go teach subjects. And this is saying no, actually anyone can teach anything because there's an equality of an, an intelligence in a very important way, not in a judgmental way. Everyone has different capacities and different smarts and all that kind of thing, but in a, in, a, in a certain important way for the educational framework, he says it's important to have this this premise of inequality of intelligences. So you can even say that with language, which is pretty incredible. 
Yeah, it's a funny one. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, ethics and the idea that at some point we have to act as if, as if, right? Yes. As if that's a possibility because that produces certain types of behaviors and possibilities, even if it may not be true in an absolute sense. Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird one. You know, I, I, I keep thinking again back to what we were discussing really from the start about this chaos and order idea. I had a pretty alternative upbringing, and I would suggest that if we stick with this chaos and, and order side of things, I think I tended to find myself in more chaos than order throughout most of my educational background. And oddly enough, as a teacher now, I, I did a workshop this morning for teachers, and it was on writing skills. And what I was actually calling for was the instigation of more order. <laughs> oh, yeah. now, I'll tell you why, though, because... This is what makes this topic complex and why I keep thinking that it's useful as like an ingredient which can subvert like the the passive normalcy of the environment that we see in front of us. Italy is a little bit different from the United States. Yeah, they have less obsessive, let's say, concern with outcomes and they have less control over teachers. Hmm. This has actually led to a situation in the education system whereby teachers are, have not been monitored they haven't necessarily had any ability to teach, but have been given jobs to teach based on having a degree in the subject. Right. Yeah. And this is going to counter a little bit the optimism or the idealism of, of some of this unlearning stuff, I think. We've had generations of teachers who literally didn't know how to teach. Yes. And students who went through high school and came out with no maths at all or no English language skills. And what we're seeing as well, sometimes in the private language institute, is a lot of teachers are given jobs just because they're native speakers and they don't actually know how to teach. As somebody who's come from a more chaotic, unlearning background, we might say not unlearning, I'm, I'm being presumptuous, but a more chaotic, free type of approach to education. What I found was that actually the creativity was not quite enough. You need structure, you need form. And, and therefore, mm -hmm. I've been working on, a, I've been building a writing curriculum for my fellow teachers in which we're trying to, in which I'm trying to balance structure but structure as let's say transmitting to students the possibility that there are tools they could master themselves physically mentally right and they can learn the structures but the structures become something that they have available to them and it doesn't become a prison right it allows them to play the system to do the exams to to, to do whatever they need and then accompanying that is the teaching of critical thinking skills which may become something creative or not. My view is, or my experience, I should say, is that not everybody necessarily has this sort of spontaneous access to creativity. And right. I don't always know if that's a case of upbringing. I think it's probably just a case of natural inclination. So I kind of think that, you know, yeah, chaos, yeah, creativity, but also order and structure. And somehow what we're looking at as educators or teachers or whatever we want to call ourselves is what's the optimal way we can actually combine those two in order right. not to lead people down the road of being passive absorbers of an existing order, but also give them enough tools that they can actually play the system if they need to. Because, you know, if they've got to put food on the table, shit, they better get that degree after all. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, you're pointing to the incredible difficulty of, of thinking through these issues. You're also pointing to the deeply ethical nature of it all, is what does it mean to train people in a way that leaves them wholly, you know, incapable of fending for themselves in, in the real world? And then the argument goes, yeah, but until we start training different kinds of subjects, that real world's never going to change. I think that's the reason why that there's that word, word radical, because there are lots of ideas about what we do, what you just described. And some would say what you're describing there is, is still within the logic of explication. It still assumes a certain kind of 
economic, political, social structure, hierarchy arrangement that's that's reflective of what is already now existing. And some people could say, yeah, well, that's, that's smart and intelligent to do that. And I agree, it is. It's just there's always these debates. Is, is Do we need to reform existing structures? Do we need a more liberal approach, a conservative approach, a progressive approach? Well, there's some people say, we're going to go for a radical approach, which means no longer be so concerned about existing structures and whether we're training subjects who can function well in them, but we're going to create, we're going to imagine a new, a new, new possibilities and we're going to realize those possibilities in the educational environment. Like when you do training in a Zen, a Zen a Zendo or whatever, you're not just learning how to function in a Zendo, you're learning how to function in the real world, how to speak, how to hold your body, how to interact with others. Not in that that highly ritualized manner, obviously, but at the heart of it, it's the same thing. And it's the same in an educational world. That's, that's something I like about a lot of so-called radical or hard left or anarchist thought is it says we can't transform society as a whole, but what we can do is create spaces of transformation where we're enacting the imagined whole here in this this limited environment. So that would call for something other than in this case, like a logic of explication or a kind of reformist mentality, because you're disgusted by the very structure and you don't want to replicate the values or even allow them breathing room. So that hints the word radical, which is you know tearing this thing up by its roots or you know planning it again. So I know it's, it's when you're within the structure and the system, you're also formed by that. And, and in order to function in it in a seemingly responsible way, you, you have to come up with things like you're talking about. I feel fortunate in a way that I, I've been kind of like uh, rejected by that system. I mean, at first I was on a trajectory, I got tenure and I was in a research one university and it seemed like I was a good product of the American higher educational system. But these kinds of ideas about what to do in the classroom led eventually to my complete not complete because I'm adjuncting now at a place, but my rejection from these kinds of environments that are attempting to you know, train train good citizens or good workers or whatever it is they're up to doing. Sometimes I feel like saying to people, I, I don't know your ideas well enough or what you're up to, but you know, say like, you know, maybe you just need to create a whole new environment to do the kind of language teaching you feel needs to happen. You know, maybe you just can't do it in this existing structure. And that's another idea of a sort of radical thought is you start creating these these new formations on the periphery or outside of you know the existing social formation. And maybe, just maybe, eventually there'll be a kind of you know collective force that starts exerting pressure on the social. Maybe or maybe not. And if not, you still have these individual spaces of of alternative ways. You know. Yeah, although, you, you know, I just keep thinking about human nature here. <laughs> because, you know, whatever starts out as radical, if it, it goes long enough, it becomes institutional. <laughs> yeah. You know, because that seems to be the way of things here. Well, so so what about if you have an institution that builds into its very ideology, that fact, it builds into the very discourse or whatever self-understanding of the institution that we have to we have to build in mechanisms so that we are genuinely ever renewing and growing and being creative and not you know becoming reified and solidified can we imagine these kinds of communities that's another part of this this kind of thinking anarchist thinking if you like is 
training or exercising or developing the imagination for other ways of being. I mean, again, it's like, you know, a hundred years ago, women were thought to be too stupid to know who to vote for. I mean, blacks were thought to be too lazy and unintelligent to, to go to college or become doctors. I mean, people really believe this, like middle-class people, you know, who thought in the 1970s that we'd have mandatory recycling. Things do change. And they sometimes they change in a seemingly utopian way. And again, you have to resist the pressure of the existing status quo to convince you that inevitably it's this way because this is inevitable. It's the natural way that it should be. My my only response to that is that, you know, again, the, these dualities coexist. And in this case, order can be seen as something malleable. Yeah. Which might sound like a paradox, but I don't think it needs to be. And when you're talking about renewal, I mean, you, you made me think of all these, you know, pre-Christian religions, right, that had implicit in their understanding of their relationship to the world, almost all of them, this sense of cycling, the seasons, and the need for renewal, both in terms of the social and the spiritual or whatever we want to call that. Mm -hmm. It's funny, but it does seem to be a human compulsion though, that you get to a certain level and that all gets fixed into stone because yes. then we've got the thing, we've got the right thing. Right. So yes. although the challenges we're, we're currently facing are neoliberalism, as you rightly said, yeah. we've got the vote for women. We've got increasing equality for homosexuals. And you know we've got, in many European countries, huge, huge leaps in the reduction of racism. Yes. And although there are, there's lots of debate about that going on, I mean, you know, if people have a sense of history, my God, things have improved drastically. It's like there seems to be this sort of uh, line that runs through the human species where we're constantly playing with that split. And even if we get rid of uh, neoliberalism, we're going to end up with something else. Right. Which doesn't mean, you know, we should resign ourselves right. to the status quo ever. It doesn't mean it's going to be anything better either, right? No, absolutely. It could absolutely go worse, which is what some of my more conservative friends mention and i agree with them they're right absolutely um, healthy forms or let's say the healthy strand of conservatism is necessary for sane societies but uh right there's a lot going on here and a lot that could be said but one thing I, i've been thinking about recently is that our species suffers from too much information <laughs> um, in the sense that we know too much we know too much but we don't really know quite what to do with all this knowing right. and this is chaotic it's intense it's difficult and challenging but it's also incredibly creative and perhaps this is something you're hinting at with what you were saying before there's a lot of opportunity available and you know it's there sometimes in the cracks in the pavement or in the margins of the book but there is possibility and you know sometimes it really does just take one or two people to trigger a change you know and sometimes there is a yeah. momentum of building and i don't know i feel quite humble as a teacher but i, I do know that some of the experimentation I've been doing as a teacher is, is introduced radical possibilities for some of my students, and we'll see what they do. Yeah, there is kind of often a humanist premise running throughout a lot of this kind of talk discourse about what's possible. I mean, it's ironic. I teach humanities and humanistic kind of stuff in the university, but I would really identify more as an anti-humanist in that I don't believe that humans are necessarily, you know, these rational beings who are working their way to some sort of progressively better place or something. I, I don't believe in that. I, I see a lot of irrationality. There's wherever we may have made progress in certain areas, but with race and gender and so forth, but we've also in the same time destroyed you know, the environment exponentially in, in those same years. And so I'm, I'm not sure that there's a sum total of progress in all this. And I also don't 
really believe that humanity is is necessarily something worth saving to be honest i mean really okay you're one of those all right i really don't I mean, people i hear people say like we are destroying the earth we're destroying the world and i always say no we're destroying humanity the, the world will be fine i mean it will it will correct itself once we're and i mean but we're here and let's let's have a good life and let's have good interactions and so forth i'm not i'm not i'm not going as far as the antinatalist or something so part of that would be how do we think through these issues from a non-humanist perspective that doesn't necessarily believe that our reasoning and rationality and innate goodness and so forth will allow us to progress towards some good end, that maybe it is just a series of endless failures. It's Maybe it is tarrying with the impossible, these ideas of, of how to be and how to live, what, you know, anarchist or progressive or radical or whatever they are, maybe built into these ideas is perpetual failure. And maybe after neoliberalism comes some horrific formation such that neoliberalism looks like a liberatory economics. Who knows, right? Another thing you mentioned, you named this really important concept. Max Weber, the old sociologist, German sociologist, came up with this term reification of charisma. You alluded to that in saying that he, he used the example of the Sufi master. And he's like, if there's no more absurd example of reification of charisma it's in Sufism where you have this absolutely charismatic figure who wanders around and uses, you know, paradoxical languages and, you know, doesn't want to gather disciples around him. Much. And what, so what happens? Eventually this charismatic figure dies. These people who identified with him gather all of his teachings. They write them down. They even, if you go to India, you know, they even build them this concrete tomb. They entomb the actual figure, like it's literal and figurative the entombment. So there is something to that, that there's something about human beings that they think they have something good. They Even as charismatic and open and you know, chaotic, they want to fix it and structure it and, and reify it in some way. So again, it's like maybe it's it's a losing enterprise and maybe it's a an impossibility, but the imagination can say, well, let's try to create a formation that builds into its very self-understanding, the danger of this possibility of reification, et cetera, et cetera. But, but again, it, with a big dose of anti-humanism in there, not like saying that this doesn't, I, we don't really believe humans are going to do this because they're as irrational as they are rational and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. This goes back to the point I made about we know too much. There's all this th thought from history yeah. interacting, coagulating yes. in places and melting in others. Yeah. And, it's fascinating. I find the anti-humanism very interesting. <laughs> now, why? Because firstly, because we mentioned, I mentioned Jordan Peterson at the beginning. <laughs> and he uh, he's great. I listened to a couple of his talks. He's great as a human, right? Not yeah. necessarily as a, as a prophet or something. And he's interesting because he speaks quite strongly against anti-humanism of the sort you've just described. Yes. And he's really... Um, very heated and very strong in his denouncement of that kind of position. Yeah. And as I listen to him, I'm, you know, I think that's interesting. I kind of appreciate his spirit and his motivation. Mm -hmm. But many of us have shared that thought that maybe it would be better if the human species was not here. You know, yeah. Because we are, in a sense, the cancer that's devouring everything. But what does that mean? You know, if you take it to its logical end, let's commit collective suicide and be done with it. Right. And my God, if that doesn't go against every single instinct we have as humans. Right. Even the hardcore antinatalists like Zapfa or Ligotti, they said like Zapfa lived into his 90s 
and he, he was an avid mountain climber, but he was like a hardcore antinatalist who believed that human existence was malignantly useless. And but once you're alive, they they don't make the suggestion that you you kill yourself. It's just a again, it's a it's a function in thought that it really radically alters your way of thinking about the world and what's possible. It also really ra- radically alters your intake of dominant ide- you know you know positivity ideology that we're constantly getting. It really builds in this kind of reflexive revulsion towards that kind of thinking that maybe it's not as much in Europe as in America, but America is run through by a kind of affirmationism and positivity. This anti-humanist stuff is like a nice little antidote to that, if nothing else. Okay, well, if it functions in that way, I think it's fantastic. Well, I would say this. On the one hand, there's this like, who hasn't read and learned enough about the world to see how dark it can be and has not, at least for a moment, had the fantasy of it all? <laughs> Wiping out the human race. I mean, it's there. It's in our collective sort of unconscious, so to speak. Yeah. We are just a blip on the thing. Like, we've been here for a short time and we might be here a little while longer. And even if, from our perspective, this is a lot of years altogether from the cosmic perspective, it's nothing. So, I mean, who do we think we are? What do we think our importance is for the universe as a whole? And what, what would it mean to actually start introducing questions like this into our ideas about how to go about the business of educating or meditating or whatever it is? Because the, the assumption being that we will realize that a lot of that going about our business of doing those things is run through by fantastic perhaps even demonstrably false assumptions about our value as human beings. I approach this up with a deep sense of ethics too, that there's, you know, we're here now and let's create the best formations we can, not operating with some fantasy that of permanence. For one thing, humanism has sort of an unstated presumption of, of some kind of, like the line goes out into infinity in some way, the, the line of humans. And that, you know, But what if we bring into it the very, the very idea of the finitude of of the project. Yeah, that's um, certainly deeply destabilizing. But you've uh, you've actually inadvertently given me a topic for my critical thinking classes. I think I'm going to bring in the uh, antinatalist perspective and see what my uh, younger and older students make of that. That's that's that's, that's good. They'll probably be repulsed. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You know, I I love doing this. I like being the trickster with them. Yeah, you know, which is one of these uh, archetypes from right. different cultures. Yeah. I, I, gain a lot of pleasure from it so one thing i get them to do you know which is a classic of critical thinking but you know if you choose the right topic then it becomes a real uh, sort of juicy challenge is i oblige them to argue for both sides of the Excellent. argument and, <laughs> that's great that's really great yeah yeah i did the death penalty with um 16 year olds and uh it was fascinating i, I really tried because obviously well, it's not obvious, but to listeners, if you don't know, I'm generally against the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a left-leaning environment, always have been. I would never likely vote right-wing, even, you know, in odd circumstances. But let's just say I really enjoy finding really, really good video material where they have very, very strong arguments right. against nice. the position I might take. Yes. I love it because it's great. You know, it's, it's good to disrupt that. I show them that and I say, right, now let's argue. And they're almost always convinced. I mean, nine out of 10, I would say, once they saw this this particular video, which I won't mention on the death penalty, they switch from being 80% against the death penalty to being 90% for it. Yeah. It's that easy. That's right. It's that easy. 
Yeah. And I'm like, now you're going to argue it for it. Right. Once you've done all of that, now you're going to write an essay on it and we're going to talk about that. But once you've done that, now we're going to go back to the position right. you once held and we'll see what you want to do with it. So that's um, great. That's really yeah, it's, great. It's, it's, it's fun. It makes teaching fun as well. But I, I kind of thinking that we should probably take some of these principles and apply them to the Buddhist landscape just a little bit, just to, just to keep our listeners sure. happy. Because there are various points that come up. One of the things that I think is that the long-term Buddhists, unfortunately, I think they're often missing out because of the sort of discussion we started out with today, because of the sort of expectations that, I know you've used the words differently, uh, I, I'm not sure I can do it myself, but because the learning that perhaps that's gone on in Dharma halls has been very much prescriptive mm -hmm. and has led to the formation you know, of the good Buddhist subject, a topic we've talked about before. One of the views I have is that when somebody is that fixed or that frozen in an idealized form, at that point, the only thing you can do is is really throw in some of the radical disruption that you've been talking about so far. And I keep thinking that there's this profound impoverishment in the sort of practices that many Western Buddhists are engaged in, and that it wouldn't be that difficult to spice them up and actually introduce some more visceral topics that might actually bring them more fully into their bodies <laughs> and the shared present moment that we're living. In the meditation environment, you mean? Yeah, I mean, in the meditation environment, whether it's on their own or in a group, but yeah. I mean, in the sort of the teaching of, of Buddhism or the reflection of it in, you know, say, more contemplative, more structured thinking types of meditation practice. Um, I don't know if I'm just one of the few people out there doing this. I really hope not. But, you know, if you take the, the anti-natal position that you talked about or the, de, you know, the anti-humanism, I don't tend to view those positions as the next truth that's somehow going to convince me of a new position I should take. I take them as meditation objects you know i'll sit with contemplate and then just see how they impact my body my emotional being let's say mm -hmm. and then just allow that to happen and breathe with it and allow it to take place yes that seems pretty straightforward to me it doesn't seem that complicated but why not right i uh, very much like what you're saying it seems like a piece of that would be before you can meditate on it there has to be learning i mean knowledge acquisition about it like what what are the premises what how do i apply reason to oppose there has to be a lot of discussion what is anti-natalism or anti-humanism before you can actually sit down and start doing another kind of contemplative engagement with it is that you're assuming that obviously that there are different types of meditation practice but if somebody is not utterly stupid even the word anti-human if you take a word like that you know you can just sit with that what does that mean I don't actually have to be educated about it. I could actually just sit with that basic word, just as you might do with death or sure. change or yeah. fear. What happens to your body and what happens to your mind when you say anti-human? Right. Then you can learn about it. Right. This is my reasoning. And this would be why perhaps doing something as simple as that would be more disruptive. Because when a person has all of their defense mechanisms in, turn of their, in terms of their logic or their existing beliefs that often filters the sort of education that might take place. Mm -hmm. So let's say I've got a Buddhist, you know, and we're going to talk about alternative views of, of the idea of emptiness, something you've done. Right. Or, you know, what about if we talk about nihilism, right, instead of emptiness? Or what if we talk about, instead of compassion and the open heart, terror, dread, and right. fear? <laughs> you know, a lot of, let's say, simplistic meditation practice, although it doesn't have to be simple, you take a word like compassion, you just sit with it. What does it, what does it mean to echo that word inside my body and my mind, mm -hmm. right? 
Mm-hmm. What resources or what experience do I have enough in my life so far that are touched or not touched just by the resonance of that single phrase? Mm-hmm. And then perhaps with some tangible experience of, of like defensiveness or trying to so sidle away from it or, you know, the immediate sort of self-defense of, you know, I say a word like anti-humanism and my, my mind says, you know, humans are sacred. Right. It's like that becomes the material for which an interesting discussion. Right. That could be more educational, let's say, would yes. become more interesting. Right. That's really the idea of education, because you're really talking about a process that is interruptive. Maybe you use the word disruptive. Right. Actually, yeah. interruptive. Yeah. We've just been going along with kind of unconsciously or preconsciously as part of our thinking mechanism or feeling mechanisms or whatever. And it interrupts that. And all of a sudden, there are new possibilities and so forth. And what you're describing, it made me also think of this continuum from you know, the silent contemplative, like you said, allowing to echo in the body, assuming the body and the mind have certain stillness so that that echoing can occur. And the other end of the continuum would be this very robust, fiery, dialogical, educational encounter with the idea of anti-humanism or compassion or whatever it is. I guess to me, it's like going back to your question of chaos and order. We have that again there in a sense, like what What's the right proportion of each of these in order for something interesting to happen? Because I, I could hear the contemplative person saying too much of that fiery dialogue. There's not enough of the silent consideration. The other could say, well, too much of the silent consideration doesn't have a really robust encounter with it because it's idea. These are ideas that circulate in the world and, and so forth. And they're exciting. Yeah, they should be very exciting because on both ends of that spectrum, right, of that continuum, there's a bodily encounter with the idea that that compels thinking. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? The thinking question is a big one. I tend to place them in a democratic relationship. (laughs) Yeah. To me, it's not that thinking is the top. Right. Whenever I have these dualities and somebody's trying to convince me that it's one or the other, I'm just, no, (laughs) sorry. Right. You know, I'm, I'm not going to invest in this odd belief that we can somehow end up with just one one thing being the best and being the victor. Right. They're a dynamic living relationship. Yes. And again, this is another educational challenge. It's how do I, how can a teacher, though, who, who doesn't have to be the authoritative figure, but the instigator, right? That's an interesting role. The teacher yeah. is instigator. How can a how can a teacher instigate an environment? that stimulates a whole range of different types of people with different backgrounds to meaningfully engage with certain questions and certain experiences. And the questions that I think in experiences is what happens to me when I really take the possibility of that thought seriously. And, you know, we can't deny whether we're intellectuals or not, that thought really impacts the body, impacts feeling, impacts emotions, and it impacts the capacity of an individual to maintain the openness even when it starts to become painful or uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. At least in my experience, you know, both teaching in a variety of environments whereby some people sign up for what we're talking about because that's what I advertise, that's what they sign up for. And yet at the same time, if I'm teaching 16-year-olds or 22-year-olds or adults working in a business, because I'm, I'm made that way, I can't help but think, how can I actually bring that quality into those spaces too? But as you rightly said before, ethically, Yes. How can I disrupt just to the point where they'll actually stay on board with the possibility that's being presented without being fried by it and just reacting negatively and saying, fuck you, that's too much. I didn't sign up for this. 
I have conversations with students like this. I know there are lots of different kinds of students and lots of different kind of learning. There are introverts and extroverts and so, et cetera. There are lots of things we can name that differentiate students from one another, right? The unlearning thing says, let's don't go in the direction of coming up with a, a, a plan. Because again, we're, we're locked into the logic of explication where there are unequal intelligences. And it's this whole other network of assumptions and postulates operating when we do that. Sometimes I think you could ask the students, like, how many of you ate breakfast this morning? And they just sit there and look at you stone faced, like, what's he doing? What am I what does he want? Like, what is this related to? They, they they're like paralyzed. And I ask the students, when do you feel most alive with ideas? And and they always say something like when they're like having a beer or having conversations with friends, they get animated. And I like, why do you think this interaction is any different? There's something about the environment. So in other words, it, it gets rid of this, this logic of procedure. <clears throat> and this is what goes on in the college all the time. You have these teaching workshops where it's always something's always of the form. Try this, it works. Well, that might work in terms of optimal, quantifiable, evaluative, or what's the word they use, like assessment-oriented learning. But again, that's something different from this unlearning notion of education, where we already have, we already know what it takes to be animated, to have the body impacted, to think, to experiment. And it's hard to, again, that's where the word, why the word radical is thrown in there. It's, it's, it's trying to uproot all these, these other ideas like that you have in the, the assessment culture of the college, you know, the university. Those boxes aren't there to check off in this way of going about it. What I hear, though, even in even in the the question you pose, you know, is a structure. Of course, is a dance in a sense. There is some ritualized form if you do it Absolutely. on a regular basis, right? Yeah. yeah. Just remember, anarchism is may, is mostly interested in the nature of order. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You did. You did start. You're absolutely that. right that these dichotomies don't work. Yeah. How do we order ourselves up for an optimal life? Yeah. Yeah, and ritualization is a huge part of that order, and it's also inescapable because we have bodies and we're constantly, you know, we're, we, we use them in very specific ways towards very specific yeah. ends. That's ritualization. So again, you can't yeah. escape these things. No, and language is shared, and, and, you know, if it wasn't, we couldn't communicate. But uh, yeah, I think there's an int- uh, there is a tendency, though, on, let's say, the more creative formless, um, I, don't, I can't use the word anarchic anymore, but let's say less <laughs> well, structured. You can use, well, not in that sense, I guess. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, that's right. So I'm, I'm trying to be careful with my words here. But uh, I can tell you that as a, as, you know, as a teacher, educator, whatever we want to call it, <laughs> yeah. I have students who, who instead, they don't always have those qualities. I think there's sometimes this kind of naive belief that actually, you know, like children are you know about all this. You know, there's this naive belief that children are born pure. Yeah. Uh, they have all the resources they need. Right. Um, it's kind of a perversion. It's not a perversion, but it's another version of the basic goodness doctrine. You right. Know? Sure. And as you rightly said at the beginning, you know, humans are capable of incredible darkness. Right. Part of me wants to say thank God for that. Otherwise, what would you be, you know? Yes. Um, where would be the tension? Where would be the creative spark? Where would be the, the exciting edge of life? But I took a freer approach from the beginning of my teaching career. A lot of people got left behind. A lot of young folks, they don't seem to have that, that sort of spontaneous capacity to produce something. 
because that's part of the foundation that saved the way I think about my relationship with students, which I base on actually seeing them. I want to be careful about that word humanism, but I, my basic ethic is I'm going to see this person in front of me as a human first. Yes. And in that, I mean a human just like me. So the roles are there. The roles are there. Okay, that's fine. But I'm always holding that as the baseline for how I perceive this other person. I don't have any inherent value that's greater than them. Yes. And neither do they. I think that's objectively true. And therefore, the roles are a part of the performance of the teaching dynamic. And I try to subvert them and hold them loosely. But a lot of these young guys, especially boys more than girls, it seems to be, at least here, a lot of these teenage boys, they really haven't learned how to think. Yeah. Um, because the passive learning has been there, but because the opposite has always been something that hasn't appealed to them, right. which is this more creative, emotional right. direction. They've never really found their way. And I, what I've been doing explicitly, again, I don't, I don't like to talk to, about myself too much on these podcasts, but I've been explicitly teaching creative, what I keep calling creative critical thinking, as a two, three-year project, which is apart from the language learning. And what I found is that that's probably been one of the most productive things I've ever done for these types of kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ones that don't know how to think, they don't <laughs> slot into the system, they don't have this creative bent, but they have something about them that says, I don't want that. And I'm not sure what I want. <laughs> right. And part of that is involved sort of leading them into various different types of terrain because they're still teens obliging them to be there. But that once they're there saying, right, what are the possibilities that could be available to you now? Right. Well, see, and you're getting them to articulate that, too, which is huge. Oh, absolutely. Because I would say when I, I look at these students, I don't see them as incapable of doing a certain kind of work. Literally, like I look at them and I, I see them as having been so incredibly passively formed that even at this age of 18 or whatever they are, they're, they're just trapped in this. And I, I guess I see it from the perspective of kind of a materialist view that they have been fashioned to be this way. They've been fashioned to be this way, particularly when they walk through that threshold from the outside into the classroom. So what I see the role of the educator is, is to get, bring them to that point that you just mentioned, where they're even starting to articulate these issues that before they were just sort of so zombified or paralyzed or whatever, whatever it is that they couldn't even articulate them. That's already a lot. That's already kind of melting in a way. Talk about the reification. Mm -hmm. uh, does that make sense? No, no, that's clear. So it's not a question of, of, an, of an idealism or of, a, or of an idealistic view of education that everyone has these innate capacities to do this kind of creative work it's rather the idea that we are precisely formed you know subjects are formed in learning environments like this and these people can be taught to function in an environment like this just like they do in other situations where their minds and bodies and emotions are alive like in conversation with a friend at a bar or something so the, the, the spark is not what matters is not the place or the people or the relationships. It's rather the ideas. The ideas is what sparks that liveliness. We're, even in the and they learn that the classroom can be a place like that. We always go back to these dichotomies: the, the educare, educare one, that the formation idea of education is a formation, or the idea of education is drawing out. And you described there with these young men is really drawing something out of them. But you're right; it, there is an order. There is. There is a degree of formation and training involved. That's always the question of, it's a question of how much of each, right? Yeah, and what extras are added on to that yes. process. What are the ingredients here? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's tricky business. To me, at least, yeah. 
whenever I think about any of the topics we've discussed or I've discussed with other podcast guests, it always comes back to pedagogy. You know, what it, at the end of the day, it's what are we taught? You know, how do we learn? And how do we continue to do that yes. throughout our lives? And how does that form individuals and societies? It's interesting, isn't it? I think that um, pedagogy as a whole, it, it's something that we don't talk about so much in wider society. Or if we do, it tends to be about, you know, declining standards. Yes, exactly. Or, exactly. Right? Yeah, or yes. changes in the curriculum right. or something. But the basic questions of what it means to learn, what it means to teach, right. and what it is to do that in specific phases of your childhood. And then as an adult, they're, 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 they're not really addressed at the the wider cultural, social level. And yeah, they just seem to me to be actually potentially some of the most fundamental questions we have. In one of the essays we were reading, the, the author's making a point that if for no other reason, the term unlearning is valuable because it, it makes explicit what you just described, the hidden implicit nature of, of what we automatically assume to be the proper procedure for education. So it's, it's calling that, it's already has an interruptive or disruptive element of saying, is that really education, what you're calling learning? All your assessment is showing this stuff works but works towards what? I just want to real quickly come back to an earlier point you made about in, in the Buddhist environments. I, I think I wrote it, I think it was on the Speculative Non-Buddhism blog, I think so, a post a long time ago, kind of pointing out the irony that at the root of Buddhism, of course, is the notion of intelligence, Bud. So there's this idea that in a lot of Buddhist communities have this idea that, that we possess this capacity to be awakened creatures and you can do that without having some sort of complex idealism that just says, of course, we can be awakened to our actual situation <clears throat> to the greatest, you know, most acute degree possible. Let's call that awakening. But you have this form of thought and practice that has at its very heart this notion of intelligence awakening working together. And yet you have these stultifying, you know, rigid forms of training that in very many ways we could gather lots of evidence for this actually want to hinder that kind of intelligence from coming. Of course, there are traditions that know we enhance the natural intelligence and all that, but we could really gather evidence to say, no, they're, they're just enhancing a kind of allegiance to that particular Buddhist doctrine. That's something different from what we're talking about here. You know, it could be quite contrary when you come to different conclusions to the, the doctrine. And that would be okay in such a, if it's a truly intelligent environment. Buddhism is really interesting because it's like people gathering in rooms all over the world at any one night. People gather doing this work, and there's pretty powerful institution, really. Can I say one thing? Because you go then. You you made me think of it like the perfect example of the, the difficulty we're talking about here. Because I I was just doing Taoism with my students, so it's fresh in my mind. You've probably heard of this, but in, you've heard of Shuangzi, right? Rings about. Okay, yeah. maybe, I don't know if I'm saying it right, but he he um he has this famous little story. The end of the story is: Take me to a man who is done with language. Take me to a man who is done with words. I'd like to have a word with him, and it really encapsulates the issue here. Like Taoism is almost embarrassed that it has to use language because it's all with its language. It's saying how how problematic language is. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yep. a lot of what we're up to here is is entering into a, a sphere that's not like the assessment sphere or the logic of explication or the you know having the form of try this it works. It is a logic of impossibility and paradox and all that. And you might say, yeah, but how can you train people to build bridges with that kind of education? And the answer is, well, 
They can go learn how to b- build bridges. Mm. That's for learning, but that's not for education. They'd still be an uneducated person. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure, yeah. Yeah. There's a struggle, of course, in all this, right? I mean, that's what we're partially doing in the conversation, struggling yes. to make sense, to find... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but 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 the form itself is revelatory. Yeah, the form of dialogue and of yeah. jumping into chaos, and it, it's also this is or it, we're using the order of time and temporality and of the podcast. So it's it's demonstrating the very thing in the form. Do you see, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I agree. Yeah, and I think it takes. Um, this would be the contradiction, though. I think it takes a certain amount of experience. Yes. For a person to be able to enter into that type of space right. and stay there, yes. Because I, I don't know what it's like for you, but I think there there could be some similarities between us intellectually. Whenever I see the resistance emerging, I take it as an invitation to be more curious. Like in yourself, it's, you mean? Yeah, exactly. It's like well, this is something worth looking at. And whenever I see myself trying to fix on a position, I say, "Well, I can relax that too." Right. And. Whenever I see myself grasping at a position, which would be a very Buddhist concept, I can go, oh, yeah, that's interesting, too. But let's keep going with this and see what happens. I agree. That's all really great. And and still, there's the, the possibility of slipping into kind of a mushy, anything goes. And we're, to, we're also talking about ethics here. Yeah. And the other one, of course, can slip into a hardening and so forth. So even there, so you still want to take positions and so forth, right? What we're describing now, in a sense, I think actually resonates with the point you mentioned before and the idea I had that actually all of this is, is practice. Yeah, in, right. You know, as valid and as yes. powerful and uh, as perfectly good as any of the traditional right. Buddhist practices that we can find. To me, at least, this is the stuff that's more interesting because it's contemporary. And as you mentioned before, if we have a conception of freedom that doesn't actually mean being fully engage with what is real in the world that we inhabit, then what kind of freedom is it? Is a kind of nullification, right. uh, a kind of refuge from the real. Right. And my ability to think creatively about these, I actually think has been empowered immensely by, you know, 25 years of involvement with Buddhist meditation practice. Yes. And all I'm doing is I've taken that and I'm using it to this end. Yes. Which I think is is actually an interesting marriage. I, I mean, I see what we're doing here in a sense. Yes as a form of contemplative practice, as the Galupas do, right? right? absolutely. Have you ever read this guy Richard Sennett's book called The Craftsman? I haven't, no. You might want to take a look at it because you, you just said something there to me is very important, and it's, it, it should be brought more into contemporary Buddhist meditation discourse. And I don't want to go into a long thing about it, but, I mean, you just described a practitioner who went through this, you said 25 years of training. He describes he analyzes the nature of craftsmanship. And and one of the points he makes is that when you enter into craftsmanship, you have to be formed and you have to learn the proper ways. And it's very strict and there's not a lot of creativity. But then slowly, you, there's more and more openness to what you could do within a craft. They make, you know, making ceramic plates or whatever your craft is, uh, or, you know, making shoes. The thing is, some people become masters of that craft. And then, then from within the craft, they start training other people. But based on the art that existing form of craftsmanship of whatever the craft is but there are some people who exit the craft not intentionally but because of the innovations they make they're automatically expelled whether explicitly or not but, but by very virtue of their innovations so mm-hmm. 
that's what I think needs to happen with meditation and so forth. Is like you have this mastery, but it all just replicates the same all the time. Exactly. Yeah. We need these people. Yeah. The, the innovations themselves are possible, and they won't look familiar to the people within. The, but but that's what you're describing a little bit. We, you, know, you know, you allude to the fact that you've been in this 25 years, and it's, it's brought you to these other areas. That's in Sinnott's language. That's sort of self exiling yourself from the from the guild. You know. Yeah. <laughs> it's lonely, you know, it's lonely out there. The guild is a community. They go drink in nice warm bars and good company. Share yeah. ideas they think alike and you know, they support each other. Well, you know, Glenn, we're gonna have to bring this to an end. It's great, Matthew. Yeah. Really yeah, it's it. always good talking to you and as as you know, the as I said, we could talk for hours and hours. You and- could. there's uh, too much terrain to explore which is one of the great things about being human of course so that's a middle finger up to the (laughs) (laughs) anti-humanist well they would agree oh well thank god for that (laughs) they just just want to share the love with the newbies (laughs) maybe it's a good good note to end on a lot of this is this going back to this Taoist idea that abandon humanity and discard righteousness and then you can become really humane and righteous in other words, like abandon the fixed notions of what this, and you can even see anti-humanism as that in a way. Like maybe anti-humanism is a form of thinking of the human outside of these fantastical, you know, exalted, self-congratulatory notions. Maybe you can look at it that way, right? Yeah, well, I can get on board with that. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like a yeah. non. It's like the it's like Laurel's non again. There's a lot of power and wisdom in that non. Well, I'm so pleased we can finish great. with the mention of the great Laurel. Right, that's um, right. <laughs> all right, Glenn. Well, uh, thanks for your time as always. And uh, we'll uh, we'll get to speaking about your book next time around. All right? Excellent.